Well, last week we started looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Set your affections on the things above. And it's all about union with Christ in his resurrection. So why don't we pray and as we continue in this passage, just ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne, and it is a throne of glory, a throne of majesty, a throne of honor, a throne of blessing. Lord, only you ultimately know yourself. Angels see you and worship you and fall down. The highest of the heavenly hosts of good angels all bow before you and recognize you, and they see you, and the only thing they can do is just fall on their, on their faces before you and say, glory and honor be to you and also to the Lamb. Lord, we read about it in Revelation 4 and 5. We can never get enough of that chapter. Lord, let that chapter always be burned in our minds and hearts by your Holy Spirit. This is who you are. This is the worship of heaven. And here we are. We are before that throne, that throne depicted there, that throne where your Son has been exalted to its right hand and has been given the scroll of human history. And Lord Jesus has been opening that scroll and opening those seals for 2,000 years now, bringing your eternal purposes to pass in the individual lives of people around this world, in every place, every generation. Lord Jesus, you have been bringing the eternal purposes of God to pass in detail. And right now we occupy the space and time and history here. Someone will occupy it past us and a future generation. People have occupied it before us, but this is our time, our place. And Lord, we just want to praise your name and we want to honor you and we want to do your will and we want your will to come to pass on earth in our lives, through our lives, just according to, Lord, your your greatness, your majesty, your truth, your righteousness, your love, your justice, your holiness. Lord, may these things be real to us and not just words. We can pile words upon words upon words, but the reality can only be known by your Spirit and only appreciated in conjunction with your Spirit. So, Lord, just ask you to bring your Holy Spirit today. We are here about your beloved Son, the Son whom you love, the eternal Son whom you uh, were with when he left heaven, as it were, and became a man and humbled himself to the death of the cross and then Lord, you raised him from the dead and brought him back to you. And when he came back, he had a human body. When he came back, he brought a person with him. His own being that he's united to forever. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is a forever thing. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for our sin, that you did rise for our justification, that we are reconciled through your blood. We are justified in the full sense of that word. We are uh, regarded as justified. We are loved as justified. We are treated as justified in your sight. Lord, you have done this. The God of heaven and earth, the only God who can ultimately forgive sin, the only God who can ever speak peace to the bottom of our souls, a peace that's lasting, a peace that's permanent, a peace that's infinite, a peace that's just. Lord, he does that to us and with us because of your blood and righteousness. Lord, let that always be our foundation, always be what we rejoice in, always be our confidence. And Lord, as we come to this book and we're going to talk about just a, a space of being risen with you and exalted with you, Lord, make it real to our souls. Encourage the faint hearted here. Clarify 
those that are fuzzy on the matter. And Lord, let this, uh, I don't know, just be a glorious thing to us. Fuel for our minds, our hearts, and the steadfastness of our faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above. That's our passage, raised up with Christ. And just to remind you again about Colossians, because it's really hard to get the feel of the book until you remember what is its background. You've got false spiritualities, false concepts of God and true religion. False religion have been poured into this mixing pot. There's been Christianity, true Christianity, mixed with Judaism and mixed with what one would call Greek philosophy, later known as Platonism and Gnosticism. Tangled mess. So the whole point of the book of Colossians is Paul is sorting the mess out. He's answering the Judaizers on the one hand who want to drag you back into Judaism and get you thinking, oh, how amazing this is or amazing that is that the Jews celebrate this and make you Jew conscious, Jewish tradition conscious. All that stuff is just nonsense. We have an Old Testament that gives us the types and shadows and symbols that are fulfilled in Christ. We need to be Christ conscious, fulfillment conscious. Not Old Testament conscious in a sense of Judaism, but Old Testament conscience conscious in the sense of fulfillment in Christ. There's another group that'll come with philosophy in our day and they'll, they'll start explaining the universe in philosophical terms and the new thing is the modern scientific terms and they'll have all these fancy words and symbols and ideas and logic and equations and supposed the, supposedly uh, impregnable scientific observation Although all you have to do is just keep up current with science and you find out they're always changing their mind. (laughs) And all those opinions that you thought were so sure have at least 50 people that differ from them. It's quite interesting. They're even, by the way, challenging Einstein these days. Einstein's not enough. Einstein can't explain the observations that they're making. So even that's whatever. But all this philosophy, all this science comes at us and says we have the proper interpretation of the world and could well-meaning Christians in trying, trying to deal with that because we want to be truthful, we want to be honest. This is God's world. Anything about this world will be reconciled with God's book. I mean, it's going to be clear and plain. But they get into all these philosophical things and start coming up with ideas that are outside of the Bible. And so here's Paul going to explain to us, no, stick with the scriptures. And that's what he was doing in that day, the Greek philosophy. And again, you have to understand the Greek philosophy Paul was dealing with to understand what the book of Colossians is really about. And they had some pretty crazy ideas that may sound very strange, but again, basically they said there's this big God that's way up here, and you really can't know him because he's too up there. He's called beyond being, And then there's this world of the physical, which is what they call non-being. It's not really worth much. And we're stuck. We're sort of a prisoner to this physical world. And in between, there's this this world of the mind, the heart. They called it the logos, the noumenal world. There's the physical world, then there's the noumenal world, the world of the mind. Noumenal means, comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind or thought. So that world of thought 
abstract. You can't see it or touch it, but it's real and it's there. And based on that philosophical sort of structure of beyond being, being, and non-being, they came up with a philosophy, and you can see it, by the way, in Buddhism, if any of you have ever encountered Buddhism. Buddhism is based on this, by the way. Buddhism is not a religion. If someone says, well, there's the great religions of the world and says Buddhism is one of them, no, it's not. It's one of the great philosophies of the world. It has nothing to do with God. I was in it, I know. I tried to be, quote, saved, achieve nirvana. And that's how I became a Christian. I couldn't do it. And then uh, one day the Lord took me to church and they were having a revival and I heard the gospel and got saved. Saved from my Buddhism because Buddhism couldn't help. Buddhism's just a philosophy. And it basically says that this world around us is not real, it's ephemeral, it's just you're imagining it, kind of like the Matrix. And your whole job is to get out of this world, to get out of your personhood, leave your personhood for nirvana. So if you really want to do it, you've got to become a Buddhist monk in which you tamp down the physical and spend time supposedly meditating and coming to great in enlightenment about who knows what, something up there called nirvana. I never could figure it out, by the way. I'd read books, and they'd tell me all about it. I'm like, I'm still not getting it. read the Bible, and it talks about Jesus Christ. And I went, yeah, Jesus, a person, God, who made all things, including cats and dogs and hamsters. God. So this proto-Gnosticism, this idea of, well, there's this world over here in which in order to get to God, you have to go through these layers of spiritual beings and, well, Jesus Christ is one of them. And that's why Paul in this letter continually says, he is the head of all things. And as I sort of mentioned last week, no matter what somebody throws at the gospel, Paul says, well, if you want to throw, you know, your little spiritual beings, your little intermediate spiritual beings at you, doesn't matter who they are, Jesus Christ is above them. He's the head of them. If you want to throw aliens at us today, doesn't matter. If there's aliens, fine, I'm not going to argue the point. But Jesus Christ is the head of them. Doesn't matter. And that's our answer. Don't debate whether they exist or not, because then you'll get into some weird thing. You'll get drug off into debate you can't manage unless you want to become an expert. I don't think you want to become an expert on aliens. Maybe you do, but... I wouldn't advise it. Become an expert on Jesus. And just say, hey, Jesus is the head of them. So that's Paul's letter to the Colossians. You understand it by recognizing the Jews who were trying to convince everybody to go back into Judaism. And the philosophers were trying to convince everybody to marry the gospel with philosophy and come up with a hybrid. And in that kind of hybridization, the gospel never brings philosophy to bear, philosophy always brings the gospel to bear. Always remember that. It's not a one-way street. And so never, never, never use the lens of philosophy or aliens or anything else to be the lens by which you view or interpret the gospel. The gospel is its own authority. Now, if someone says, well, these hierarchies, you know, maybe they're not real. Have you? Gwen, Gwen has a friend whose son died he was about 40-something, about the age of most of you here. Died unexpectedly. And yesterday they had his funeral. And so they were streaming his funeral, and it was Catholic Church. And so Gwen watched it because this is her good, good friend. 
And so Gwen, I'm downstairs and trying to get some things done, and Gwen is continually saying, you got to come up and see this. you got to come up and see this. Because she was being reminded of the Catholicism that she grew up around. She was a Protestant, Baptist, in the midst of all these Catholics and Jews. You'd have to understand New Jersey. It's just full of Catholics and Jews and Protestants. So it's a big mix. And so she was just being reminded of all the things that, you know, she had heard from her friends and things like that and purgatory and this and that and the other, things that you, you think, yeah, I've heard of it, but it, did really people really believe it? Yes, they really believe it. They really do. Nice guy doing the, nice priest doing the uh, funeral. But he talks about Mary. Wait a minute, Mary. Why do we have, why does the Catholic Church have Mary and saints that you pray to? Sounds like Neoplatonism to me. Here's God, here's Jesus, and then here's all these saints you can pray to also. It's the same thing. Coming and putting other mediators between you and God besides Jesus. So if someone thinks, well, you know, maybe that happened in Colossae, but not anymore. It's like there's a whole Catholic church with, what, one point some billion Catholics who believe that there's a hierarchy of saints that you need to get into the stairway of in order to get right with God. New Age Spiritism, again, has all these spirits you come to and, and aliens and stuff. Just The book of Colossians is a very relevant book today. In this passage here, if then you've been raised with Christ, it's a final culmination application of Paul's previous assertions. We took a selective little guided tour of Paul's prior reasoning because Paul is saying, if then you have been raised with Christ. He's said a bunch of things before that are meaningful. Meaningful to this application. And it's always good to remember that when you read Ephesians, or Colossians, always read Ephesians and always read Philemon. Read those three together. If you say, ah, oh, I feel like reading Colossians, and go, yeah, I'm kind of stuck with Ephesians and Philemon also. Because those three letters were written together and were all delivered by Tychicus to that area. The Laodiceans got the Ephesian letter first and the Colossians got the Colossian letter and then he said, now exchange letters and read them. And Philemon was someone at Colossae who hosted, apparently hosted the church. They met at his house. So it's really good to read those three together. You get a whole sense of what was going on. You get a whole gospel. Colossians and, and Ephesians follow each other, have very similar letters and very similar po- uh, thought patterns, but at times Colossians will expound on something that Ephesians doesn't. And so Ephesians will make a short statement and Colossians will elaborate it. Or Colossians will make a short statement and Ephesians will elaborate it. So they're really good. They fit hand in glove to get a a full picture of Christianity. So I recommend always reading them together. Similarities, mutualities, complementary expressions and expansions on things. Now, as we look at things, you remember there are some key points in the letter to the Colossians that are important. If you've been raised up with Christ, what did Paul say to to bring us to this statement? In his letter, he starts with a normal greeting, but it's interesting. He says, and the brother Timothy to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ that are at Colossae. You want a definition of a church? There it is. Now, 
You can go to seminary and get whole books on it. Or you can read the beginnings of each of the letters of Paul and get the total clarity on what the church of Jesus Christ is. It is a group of believers who are considered brethren. They're not individual believers who attend a space. They are believers, saints, sanctified ones, Old Testament concepts. They're believers in Christ and their brethren, that's their association, that's their essence of their relationship. That's not something you get by joining a church, that's something you get by joining Jesus Christ. Our brotherhood depends not one whit on what church you and I go to or what supposed church covenant I sign. It means nothing. What means everything is that you're in union with Christ and I'm in union with Christ. Now, I don't know what book you have to read to get that, but all I got to do is read the Bible and it's a pretty simple thing. The hard part is standing there in the face of high-powered theology that wants to somehow think, well, you have to have all this internet. Like, no, I don't. Why? Why can't I sit there and meditate and go, a body of believers is a body of brethren united to Jesus Christ in a certain local place. In this case, Colossae. Go to another letter, it'll be, um, you know, at Ephesus. You go, rather not Ephesus, but Galatia. Churches of Galatia. Little groups of people all over who, because of the limitations of transportation in the first century... They gathered together probably in a space about as far as they could walk. And that was considered a church, a body of believers in union with Christ. That's how the letter opens up. Timothy, the brother to the saints and faithful brethren. Brotherhood is the essence of our relationship not church membership. The only membership the Bible knows is what? Being a member of Christ. Find a statement any other place, in any other way. Find any statement that says you're a member of somebody else other than Jesus Christ and one another in Jesus Christ. It's the only association the Bible knows. And if you're in a local area and you gather together on that reality for those purposes and for those things, you are a body of believers. You are an ecclesia of Christ. And that's how the book opens, and that's how we're to understand everything. And Paul says, I'm glad for your faith and hope and love. Some folks say, well, you can't assess whether someone's a Christian. Yes, you can. Faith, hope, and love, those three things throughout the New Testament are stated to be the measure of knowing whether somebody's a Christian. It's the measure of how you can look in a mirror. Do I have faith, hope, and love? Not gobs of it. Do you have any of it? Now, you need to shoot for gobs. That needs to be your goal. But faith, hope, and love, I mean, those are the things that are marks of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. Faith in God. Faith in Jesus. Faith in a well-defined God in Christ. Hope, hope in a new heavens and a new earth in Christ. Love, love that only comes from God that binds us together in Christ. Faith and hope and love streaming into our lives by the Holy Spirit. And you must grow in it. You start with a very, what you might say, a very small amount of it and Christ fills you with it and matures you and grows you in life. A lot of times it hurts, that growing pain hurts, but... 
chapter one, verses three through eight, faith, hope, and love in a global gospel, gospels to the nations. Epiphras, a faithful minister. Thank the Lord there's faithful ministers. Faithful minister is a simple thing. Read, read the picture of Epiphras in this letter. Opening verse 7 and 8 and the closing, chapter 4. Old Epiphras. I used to think to myself, like, I can't be a Martin Luther. I can't be a John Calvin. I can't be a pick-your-preacher. But man, I can be an Epiphras. A simple minister of three little churches in the, stashed away in the mountains in Turkey unknown to anybody but who was there and the Apostle Paul who happened to meet him when he went to Ephesus for Paul's Academy of Preachers. Like in Ephesians, chapter 1 opens up with this prayer, this great prayer in verses 18 through the end of the chapter. 1, 18 through the end. 23 or 22 or 23. So Paul has this great prayer in Colossians, and remember that, a prayer for spiritual wisdom and understanding, very similar to Ephesians, but he throws into it that you might be fruitful, a little bit different from Ephesians, that you might know the power of God, same as Ephesians, and that you might live a holy life. Again, I was in jet-propelled Christianity, Pentecostalism, where everybody had their little version or the little nuance or the little tributary of how you could go out and really have the juiced Christian life. Well, Paul says if you want the juiced Christian life, the juiced Christian life is a life of personal, real, Bible-defined holiness. You can smoke and be holy. Believe it or not, don't advise it. I'm not advising it. It's just it used to be, you know, what was the saying? I don't smoke, drink, or cuss. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Well, you can't cuss and be a Christian. That's one thing. Paul says that right in chapter 4. Speech seasoned with salt kind of eliminates cussing. You know, who was it that was a cussing preacher? I remember that one. Gosh, that was two years of debate. Like, what a useless debate because some arrogant man thought he could violate the Scriptures. Spiritual wisdom and understanding to know Christ, to know the kingdom of God, and to live a holy life. And then the things that matter to our passage, that are directly specific to our passage. Chapter 1, 12, and 13, give thanks to the Father who delivered us out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. I just love the way the ASV puts it. Sometimes ASV doesn't put it in the nicest way or in the in the most uh, august way, but there's sometimes it just captures it in the, the modern translations kind of blow it. The son of his love. Jesus is a reigning Messiah. He has a present and a future reign. And that kingdom of God is presided over by the son of his love. The kingdom The right hand of God, that's the terminology. In 1.14, we have forgiveness, the foundation of everything through his blood, the foundation of everything. There's the essence and primacy of Christ that comes before this passage. He's the image-bearing son over all creation. He is God the son, the image of God, the firstborn of creation. He's the head of the church. He's the universal fullness and reconciliation If there's aliens out there, which I doubt, but if they are, then they're related to God through Christ. You see, 
Brothers and sisters, don't get all in touch with aliens. Don't worry about them. Tell people, say, aliens, are you kidding? That's like an, an elephant wanting to be a mouse. Now, there may be some advantages of being a mouse, I don't know. But if I was an elephant, I'd stick with being an elephant. We are the sons of God. Every other set of beings out there is far beneath us, far below us in terms of love and affection and purpose. There is God and there is his son who is the head of a new humanity. Everything else is below. Everything. And that's what you do when someone asks about aliens. Turn it to that direction and that discussion. The primacy of Christ, the headship of Christ over everything. Colossians was made for our day. We were once enemies, but now reconciled in the universal redemption of Christ. Paul says, I'm a minister of these things. There's this great mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. That is Christianity. That is discipleship in the New Testament. If Christ is not in you, then you're not in Christ. One of the great things to understand, and it's a, well, we call it New Covenant theology, call it what you want, it's just biblical theology of the New Covenant. Paul says, I'm a minister of the mystery of God, and Jesus brought the mystery into history. There you go, there's a slogan for New Covenant theology. Jesus brought the mystery into history. And that's what inaugurated the kingdom of God. And the mystery is Christ in us, the hope of glory. All the folks in the Old Testament knew nothing of that. They had the Holy Spirit, but they did not have the Holy Spirit as being in union with Christ. That is something that only new covenant believers have. So I've said many times before, some of you say, oh, I wish I was Isaiah or David or you know, some other person in the Old Testament that you, know, you saw as great. It's like, yeah, well, they were wishing they could be you. Isaiah wished he could be you. King David wished he could be you. Because we live in the time in redemptive history where Jesus has brought the mystery into history. That is New Covenant theology. Or better, New Covenant eschatology. Then Paul talks about the result of this is prayer, comfort your hearts, unity, love, full understanding, don't be carried away with false teaching. Remain steadfast in what Paul outlines in Colossians and Ephesians. Walk with God, being rooted and established in Christ, in faith, with thanksgiving. Again, don't be carried off, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, when human philosophy, Christ is the fullness of God and he's the head over all things. Don't buy into somebody else's list of things. Don't be carried off by Judaism, chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Circumcision, because our circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. What the Old Testament talked about, we experience. Represented in baptism, our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. UWCDBR, there you go. Union with Christ, death, burial, resurrection. That's the gospel. 
2.13, we were once dead, but now 2.14, we are alive and forgiven, and the old covenant no longer has dominion over us. The old covenant's done. A lot of people don't like that. They don't understand that. They get a little, what do you mean by that? I'm like, well, read Galatians chapter 3 and 4. It's all about the old covenant being done. Read 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. It's all about the old covenant being done. Really read chapter, Philippians chapter 3. It's all about the old covenant being done. Read Hebrews chapter 1 through 13. It's all about the old covenant being done. When are we going to get it? The old covenant's over. It's done. It's been replaced. Yes, replacement theology is biblical been replaced by a new and everlasting covenant because what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God established in Christ in a new covenant see it's all here in Colossians 2.15 Jesus conquered dark principalities and powers and brought them in a victory parade And then Paul starts to apply, and that's again what's here. If you've been raised with Christ, an application of what he said, that you've died with Christ, you've been buried with him, you're risen with him, and then he's going to add an essence or a nuance to that rising, because we keep thinking, I'm risen with Christ. It's kind of generic, and Paul makes it, no, it's specific. So he says, the old covenant is done. Don't get caught up in types and shadows of Judaism. He said, God... Jesus is God, and he's the head of all principality and power. Don't get caught up in false spiritualities. Don't get caught up in the misdirection of Mary or saints or New Age spiritism or aliens or any such thing. Stick with Christ, the head of all principality and power. You've died to sin. Don't get into misguided views of holiness or how to attain it. Don't get into asceticism or legalism. Stick with true biblical holiness, which is outlined in chapter 3 and 4 of Colossians. You want to know what true biblical holiness is? Read Colossians 3 and 4. Pretty simple. Hard to do, but easy to understand. I don't need John Owen's volume 10 to get it. I just need Colossians chapter 3 and 4 and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm pretty sure John Owen chapter 10 might you know, say some things that are pretty cool, but you know how much you have to read? 500 pages before you get a few cool things? I get way better cool things just in reading two chapters in Colossians in five minutes. I'm not denigrating reading them. Some people need to. If I had the time, I would. But it's just not necessary. People who keep saying, oh, the Puritans are like, you know, the sin quanon of everything. I'm like, no, it's not. No, they're not. Apostle Paul is. Apostle Peter. Then we get now, if you've been raised up with Christ. Trying to give the sense of the flow of this. If you've been raised up with Christ. Paul here engages us now that we're here. Colossians 3.1. You've been raised up with Christ. He engages us with the power and the privilege of our union with Christ in his resurrection and in his exaltation. Now, these may sound like fancy words. These may sound like big ideas, but start thinking about who you are. Are you a believer? Are you one of those saints and faithful brethren at, where are we? Greenville County, I guess we'd have to say. We're spread everywhere. You've been raised with Christ. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you get up in the morning, do you go, ah, I'm a day older. Now, there's a point in which, when you're young, you want to be a day older. But there's a point in your life where you don't want to be a day older. Because the mirror ain't looking good after a while. 
The mirror starts looking better and then it starts looking worse. So, you know, be glad for that middle road and just be who you are. But then you're so full of kids, so busy, life just goes bzing. And one day you get to the place where, gosh, remember I tried to pull out the gray hair. I started that. Any of you doing that, by the way? You don't have to. You can come tell me later. I'd go in there with the tweezers. Oh, I don't want that. And I was only 30. I'm like, what am I doing with the white hair? I'm 30. It doesn't happen until you're 60. I'm raised with Christ. You get up in the morning and think, that's my identity. That's who I am. Then you say, gosh, I'm getting a raw deal from God. I got a crummy bank account, crummy this, crummy that. Particularly it's hard in America because there's so much wealth everywhere and so much waste of money. Did any of you drive around and look at all the cars on the road and go, where do people get the money for this? Because these are $60,000 cars everywhere. If you want an electric one, throw in an extra $20,000. And then another $20,000 after that to replace the battery in 5, 10 years. So much for green cars and green energy. Do you wonder where anybody gets the money for this? I always go, what's happening? I am happy with my 12 or 14, Gwen will give you the right number. 14-year-old Hyundai, I'm going to try to get 25 years out of it. I love my little Hyundai. A few things I love. I love my Hyundai, I love my kitchen, and I love my shoes. So. <laughs> Bought two pairs, although you're going to see them for a while. <laughs> but this is our identity. This is who we are. It's about identity. It's about the essence. It's about ontology, if you want to use fancy words. It's about existence and being and reality. Being raised up with Christ was presented in the, in the previous scriptures, the previous passages in Colossians. And I go over it twice because it's important. Our Christian life is not about focus on the family. Our Christian life is about living out the reality of being united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection as a follower of Jesus, and my family is only part of it. Do you all get that? Your children will grow up and leave. They will. At first, you don't want them to. Then there's a point in time when you're, glad, you're thinking of being a good idea. And then you're going, no, not really. Well, maybe. Yeah, not really. Back and forth, and then they do, and it's a whole big, huge change in your life. And then you realize, focus on the family. They have some good things, but even they admitted that that's not discipleship, it's but a part of it. That's why any idea of, well, I'm going to disciple my children, I'm like, good grief, are we really this crazy using biblical terminology in an unbiblical way? I'm going to tell my children about Jesus. I'm going to use the book of Proverbs and tell them, this is God's world and you're born into it and you are obligated to God because you're in the image of God and there'll be a day of judgment for you. That Clear, simple framework is what you bring to your children. That's your responsibility as parents. You're not here to make them Christians. You talk about Jesus all day long, they'll hear more about Jesus before they're done with your house than most people ever will. If they're going to be saved, they're going to hear plenty of messages from you and from others about being a Christian. Your job as a parent is not to disciple them. That's baloney. If you're going to disciple them, first thing you've got to do is baptize them. Because that's the Great Commission. 
So if you've baptized your child, yeah, maybe you can take part in their discipleship. But if your child's in Christ and been baptized, they're part of this big body here. And they're going to grow up and more and more be a participant in it. And you're there to help them do it well. Starts out with brush your teeth this way. Starts out with here's how you put a knife and fork in a, by the next to your you know, plate in America. Because we live in an American culture. I'm not going to worry about the rest of the world. If they put their knife and fork differently, okay, but I live in America, so my kids need to do it this way. Yes, traditions are good things. They're important. There are expectations in our culture that if you don't meet, you won't do well. This is kind of like normal life. Book of Proverbs is about normal life things with God's stamp of approval that this is God's design for life. You're to raise your kids that way. But you are raised with Christ. He's the eternal Son of God's love. He's the firstborn of all creation. He has victorious reign over every principality and power. He's reconciled us to God by his blood. He's eliminated every enemy. He's provided every spiritual resource. You've been raised with Christ. Are you really worried about your bank account? Are you really worried about having stuff? See, the world comes and drags you off. I used to get drug off, probably maybe still do, but I get harebrained ideas about this and that, and I'd sit there and go, what a waste of time. I just waited, wasted a month or a week. Or I wasted my soul on something that in the end doesn't matter. Let God work it out. I'm raised with Christ. That is the center and core of my life. Paul presents it at a fact, not if, as if there's a doubt, but since. If you're a believer, then you're raised with Christ. There are dynamics that come with this. Whether you know it or not, whether you understand it or not, there are dynamics that come with this, and you're to, to live in them. This raised, raised up with Christ is a present and foundational reality of all true Christian experience. You're forgiven, you're alive, you're raised, you're seated in the heavenlies. This is the reality of Christianity. Without this reality, you are not a Christian and can never be a Christian without this. This is the foundation and essence of discipleship. We follow Jesus who's in heaven. It's the heart and soul of everything. So the question becomes, is this the explanation of my heart and life? Does this explain you? Does this explain me? Well, Steve's always talking about the Bible. What, why is that? He's just some intellectual? Or is he driven by the Spirit of God to love a book that most people don't understand, even though it's simple? Does this reality explain you? You've been raised with Christ. You live here on earth. You are in union with Christ in the heavenlies. You're a child of two worlds, two realities, but you still face enemies, remaining sins, spiritual darkness, false teachings, oppositions, and so forth. Are you in union with Christ? Do you experience that? Everyone in union with Christ will ultimately be victorious. Now, here's a question. There's a, 
<coughs> I've seen lots of war movies, and some of them were ancient. Some of them, you know, were World War I, World War II. World War I is always kind of boring to me because it's trenches. So the best you can do is have drama in trenches. I'm like, nah, I don't watch World War I movies. One's, one's enough. One will tell you all about it. That's it. But you get like skirmishes or battles that, you know, had really sort of interesting details and turns of events in them. And you'll see this battle happening, like the Battle of Bastogne. That's the famous one in World War II, right? Where the 101st Airborne held out for weeks in a frozen winter against every possible odd against them. It's just in all the textbooks. Or the Battle of Chosun Reservoir in Korea. These are battles where just the, the, the opposition, the, the encounters were just at every moment on the edge of intensity. Every encounter was make or break. Now let's say when Bastogne was finally liberated by the Fifth Army, General Patton, those soldiers come out of the battle. What do they look like? Did they have nice pressed clothes? Were they, yes ma'am, sir? Were they snapped to? Or were they worn and haggard and bloody and scarred? You're going to make it to heaven, but you're not going to come go to heaven with neat pressed clothes. You're just not going to get there that way. The Christian life is not a pathway of roses. It's a pathway of warfare. We're risen with Christ, but we're soldiers in a battle, and we're going to look like it. We're going to be, most of us are going to be bloody messes, not neat and clean and tidy. And so if you look at your life and it's a mess, it's part of the warfare. Don't interpret it as you're failing. Interpret it as you're fighting. I don't think General Patton was worried about dress code when he liberated 101st Airborne. Don't have misconceptions of the Christian life or victory. Victory is achieved by warfare and battle. But here's the preservation and perseverance of the saints. You're raised up with Christ. You're going to make it. Don't worry about the dress code. Now, if you've been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above. This is to motivate us into actively seeking God and the things of God. Because we're raised with Christ, that's what we pursue. Seeking things that are above. This should govern our heart and soul. This should prioritize our life decisions. Our life here must reflect this heavenly reality that I'm raised with Christ. What does it mean to seek the things that are above? I'm on earth. How do I seek things that are above? Do I walk around always looking in heaven? Well, you might try it sometime. Look up and go, Lord, one day you're coming back and I'm going to be with you. And there's all kind of galaxies out there. 
I have no idea how you're going to work this out, but it's going to be really way cool. And maybe Steve will get his super starship. Who knows? Seek the things that are above. Well, how on earth do you seek the things that are above? Well, there's the recognition of God, the fear of God, the worship of God. There's the light and love of God coming to expression through you. There's the reign of Christ and the knowledge of that and the understanding of that and the perception of that. And let it be sort of the umbrella of all your thinking and hope and purpose. There's giving alms to the poor. There's prayer for the saints. There's righteousness, there's godliness, there's brotherhood, there's fellowship, there's witnessing, and so on. These are the things that you seek here because they represent and express the things that are above. And these things that are above are where Christ is. You're not just seeking the things of a generic God or a generalized Christianity. It's where Christ is. You are to be living your life by seeking the favor of God and recognizing who you are in God's universe, where you stand before God, where Christ is. It is specifically the things where Christ currently dwells in a place of power and glory and honor. That's where he is. When you're praying, that's your first thing. Our Father who's in heaven, a recognition of who God is, a recognition you're praying through Christ, a recognition of who he is. When you're concerned about work, your job, you go, well, Christ is in heaven. He's not my boss. As a matter of fact, he can control my boss like that. He can control companies. He can control nations. He can do whatever he needs to do to get you a job. That's your faith and hope and trust. God meets us changing diapers, and he meets us in prayer. Everything that we do, we remember, I'm united with Christ, and I'm going to seek the things that belong to him. The gospel of God is the gospel of Christ. The kingdom of God centers in Christ. One day I hope to go through the book of Revelation. Maybe someone else will get there before me, but I hope to because I just love the book because more than any of the book, it shows the centrality and glory of Christ in human history. Someone mentioned to me the other day that I talk a lot about it, but they didn't get a lot of it. I'm like, oh, I can fix that. Or try. Only the Holy Spirit can fix it. But I look for the day when I can. Any self-proclaimed spirituality apart from the exalted Jesus Christ is absolutely, utterly empty and false. Remember that. Tell people that. Be a witness to that. Explain that to a confused world around you. See, these are the things you talk to people about. Where Christ is. Samuel Rutherford once said, I will not go to heaven unless you can persuade me that Christ is there. Paul put it another way, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Where Christ is. Is that your heart? Personal regard for the Lord Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of God. This carries the full Old Testament and New Testament sense of this meaning. 
Psalm 2, I've already set my king upon my holy hill. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Psalm 8, the true man dealt with in Hebrews chapter 2. Psalm 16, the resurrection of the Christ. Peter has just presented that. Psalm 22, both the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that follow them. Psalm 110, at the right hand of God. Isaiah 2, there's coming a kingdom where all nations are going to flow unto it. That's now. That's not the future. That's now. Are you going to the spiritual Zion? Chris talked about this morning. We've already come unto Zion. It's already there. We're already there. Are you going there for the law of God, for the truth of God, for the righteousness of God, for the grace of God, for the life of God? That's what Isaiah 2 is about. Isaiah 7, a son is given. God with us. He just wasn't with us for a moment. He's with us forever. Isaiah 9. Those that sat in darkness have seen a great light, for unto us a child is born. Isaiah 11. The shooting offspring of Jesse, David's father. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him. The spirit of wisdom and might. Ezekiel 34 through 36, David, the coming king. It's all been fulfilled. It all comes to its full expression right now in Christ at the right hand of God. This is why reading the Old Testament is important, and especially the Psalms. You need to be reading them. Remember these Psalms I just talked about were the foundation of all the prophets. Always remember that. Isaiah wrote because... David, hundreds of years before him, said there's going to go one who's going to be seated at God's right hand. And Isaiah expounds it further. This is why understanding the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show unto us. You see, the book of Revelation, as strange as that book may be, it's what God gave him to give to us, to understand who Jesus is. And that's why that book is so important to be clear on and to properly interpret. This is why invalid views of the continuity or discontinuity of the history of redemption are crippling. That's why I talk about it. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. This is everything to Christianity. Set your mind and affections on the things above. Paul doesn't use noose, which simply means the place where you think. He uses phronema, which means the entire framework of your being, who you are. Set it on the things above. Don't set it on the things of this earth. Your life is but a vapor, James says. Remember that. Be wise spiritual investors where there's true ROI. Everybody know what ROI is? It's a big deal. Return on investment, ROI. What's the return on the investments of your life? You should be ROIing your family, yes, your children, your wife, your husband. But you also need to be ROIing the kingdom of God. This world, if you see if something's not going to have a permanent, eternal ROI, return on investment, maybe don't invest. Or maybe invest a little. We'll pass over those passages. You set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Why? Because you've died. 
In a real sense, this world should mean as much to you as it does to a dead person. You've died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, people have jewelry. And normally when they have jewelry that's expensive, made of gold, I learned a long time ago, it's like, why don't instead of just buying gold, why don't I buy my wife jewelry that's gold? Then I got money and, you know, I get two birds with one stone. But if you have gold jewelry, where do you keep it? Just have it laying around or anybody can pick it up? No. Usually you put it somewhere safe. Our life is hidden somewhere safe. You're not losing it. You may be having some hard times, but you haven't lost your life that's hid with Christ in God. That is not possible. And when Christ is revealed, and here's one of those words for that semantic field of the parousia, I really want you to remember one word. Don't tell me second coming. Tell me parousia. It's a Greek word, and it means arrival. There's a day when Jesus is going to arrive in person. Parousia. Remember that word. It's a good word. It's one of the few Greek words. You know agape, right? Everybody knows agape? It's love. Well, no parousia. It means arrival. Everybody's all about all the little details of Jesus' arrival, but you know, whatever those details are, and they're actually easy to figure out, what's hard about the parousia of Christ is all the stuff you've learned, because you've got to unlearn it, mostly. I, thankfully, I was never taught that stuff. I did have to deal with it, but I was never taught that stuff, so I didn't have to unlearn a lot. But when Christ is revealed, that is parousia, this is our life, this is our ultimate hope. Our spiritual life here is but a prelude and a down payment of the life to come at Jesus Christ's parousia. When Christ, who is our life, shall be revealed, make himself known as who he is, the Son of God, the Son of God's love, the head of a kingdom, then you're also going to be revealed with him in glory. Now, if you're like me, you kind of want to know what that is, and you feel like, well, if I was a real Christian, I'd kind of have a lot of it now. Well, you're not. Sorry. Not going to happen. You only get a down payment. Ephesians 1, 14. You don't get the whole deal. We want the whole deal, but you don't get it now. That the parousia will be raised incorruptible, 1 Corinthians 15, and we will ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4. We will be glorified together with God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, Revelation 21 and 22. You've been raised with Christ, and because of that, you will one day be revealed with him in glory. That's Christianity. Is this your hope and purpose? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and Lord, we're one day going to be revealed in glory. That will be an awesome time. If most folks are like me, it's also a time to stand before your throne and that kind of scares me. I know all the regrets that I have that I can't change. I know all the things I wished I'd done and didn't or all the things I wished I didn't but did. And one day that's going to get sorted out. The Lord is going to be sorted out from a place of being justified, of being accepted in the beloved. And so, Lord, let us think of this day not with perhaps a fear of, of those things we regret, but with a recognition of the glory that will be revealed. Let that fill our hearts, that we are united with Christ in the heavens above. And that's a real thing. And we have a hope of glory because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.